Hello, and welcome to the CEO Blind Spot Show, where leaders lead leaders. I am your host, Birgit Camps, and the guests I invite on my show are CEOs that are high performers and also willing to be humble enough to share their leadership blind spots. So today on our show is Jan Kamps. He is the CEO and founder of Erasmus Interconsultancy. And I'm going to brag about you a little bit and then turn the show over to you because you have been a turnaround guy, a CEO, uh, for sure a high performance leader in many different industries which is unusual. A lot of times people rise to the top in one particular industry. You've done the pharmaceutical industry. You've, got, you've done hospital supplies. You've done car dealerships, hotels, and, uh, which is now why you advise people in different uh, industries. So, but I do want our uh, listeners to know that sometimes uh, people have this idea that to be a CEO, you have to have years and years and years of experience before you get there. And I'm, uh, I'm going to share something about you, which is that at 29 years of age, you were already promoted to the CEO of a large, one of the largest privately held pharmaceutical companies in the world. And you were leading, you were the CEO of the country of Mexico. And uh, they'd had quite some struggles there, probably because of culture and language and whatnot. But you'd already had a successful career track record you know, early on in your life. I don't know how much being in the Marines helped you with that. But anyway, you, in, in record time, you turned that country around. You made it uh, one of the top performers. So then you would think, okay, now you're set. But we also know that leaders keep growing. And at some point, you decided to move on and you were in the hospital industry, hospital supply industry. You built a manufacturing plant um, in record time and for sure compared to these days. And um, you were uh, recognized for that. And then later on, you took over a Porsche Audi dealership, having no previous experience in that industry and uh, turned it around, uh, made it very successful and got awards for um, one of the top performer Porsche Audi dealerships in North America. And I'm only picking three or four of your greatest achievements. And so, of course, the listeners are going, man, I could never do that. And he must just be absolutely perfect and have the Midas touch. But uh, like you know, and like many leaders know, you didn't wake up and go, you know, I touch it and I'm CEO and everything's great. You went through quite a few hardships, learning new cultures and learning new language and, and made some mistakes yourself. So um, I'm now going to turn the show over to you. And, um, you know, there's a lot of leaders right now that are, that are struggling, that are, are thinking they're the only ones who've made mistakes. So sharing anything you're willing to share would certainly help our listeners. So go ahead and take over and tell us, you know, the way you see things and what you felt that uh, your leadership blind spot was or what you struggled with. All right. Well, as you said, it, I've been working in uh, a few different industries. But the principle of uh, being a successful uh, coach leader to a team of people independently of the country or the language or the culture is always the same. And uh, as I said before, uh, or as I mentioned, I think, to you one time, the real issue and, and the reason for success was always, was I, be, was I able to really uh, motivate 
the people that I was working with. And to do that, uh, I found that it was absolutely important to directly connect with the people. Uh, looking around uh, in the industry, uh, and I still see that today, I think one of the major mistakes of, of CEOs is that they uh, put themselves into the ivory tower of being CEO and, and forget about directly communicating and contacting their people. Uh, even if you have a, a company that's very well organized and that has all sorts of procedures and systems into place and um, and then uh, thinking that people will follow these instructions as they usually are. They're usually in form of instructions instead of a, of a uh, co-developed uh, set of, of values and, and goals. Mm. So that sip simply does not work uh, in my view. So the first thing that I've always done uh, in the different companies that I work with was getting to know the people. Uh, that meant going really down uh, to the level of operations. That's where it's happening. Give you an example. In the pharmaceutical industry, there's a whole bunch of, of executives. There's very few people in the pharmaceutical industry today, and even at my time, uh, that were willing and able to visit the medical doctors with the products, which is really what this was all about. And to do, uh, and, and they were mortally afraid of, have, of having to do that, which is a funny thing. You would think that, you know, leading a company in, in their own, uh, with their own products should be an easy thing, but no. So the first thing I did uh, was really talk to the medical reps. Uh, and even as a CEO in Mexico, all, of course, I was still pretty young. Uh, and I had done that before in my job as supervisor of the Caribbean area and even as a medical rep a short time before. So it was nothing really special to me. But to the people that I work with, apparently that uh, really opened up a lot of doors for me. So I felt that I really established a very good connection. And, uh, and this is what we kept on doing in Mexico for about eight and a half years. I'll give you a little example. Uh, we had uh, at that time, I think about 150 reps or something like that in Mexico. And uh, it's a huge country. Uh, mm -hmm. It's four and a half thousand kilometers from one end to the other, which people often don't re uh, realize in about a 2000 mile border with the United States. Uh, so how did you, how could you connect to your people and what could you do? So we were the first company in uh, in mexico that used an ibm 36020 system for marketing purposes and it really was was a service to the medical reps they would fill out of course their uh, visit uh, reports and things like that but then um, once per month we would have a regional meeting uh, in about 12 different uh, parts of the country and during that meeting, uh, we would hand the medical reps uh, their reports of their previous month, and it already gave them uh, the information, what they had talked about, what was their goals, uh, 
mm-hmm. um, and that enabled them to be much more effective in their uh, in the planning of their visits and uh, in and in the uh, executing in in in, in uh, executing the visits. Remember, at that time there was no internet, there was no email, uh, and so um, I had to to follow a a uh, IBM course for non-executive or non-computer uh, people and uh, learned about that 360 and then I hired away a guy from IBM and we uh, eventually uh, then set up the system and it really was a great part and my great tool um, uh, to be successful. But I think the most important takeaway from this is that the medical reps, or the guys that were really in the front line, felt that we were giving them a very valuable tool and that we understood their business very well. Uh, so that that was a big part of the of the success in 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 the Mexican time, and we did that over eight and a half years. Yeah. Uh, so so we're hearing uh, everything that went well. Um, and one of the keys, though, that you said is that you knew you had to talk to people and go to, you know, basically down to all levels and not just give instructions. And my understanding is that in the pharmaceutical industry, a lot of it has processes and procedures and, and very, uh, yeah, well, very process oriented, do this, do that, follow this, follow that. Uh, and you somehow were able to to include the technology, the processes, everything that, that I guess pharmaceutical companies strive for, yet you added a layer of talking to the people. Did you wake up and know this? Because I mean, in the military, you're pretty much told to follow orders from what I understand. How did you go from, from a military environment to what, what seems to be more of a collaborative environment? And you know, what, what struggles did you face along the way before you discovered that? Well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, my military experience, of course, first was a, 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 a officer's trainee, and there indeed it was the typical Marine uh, situation. A Dutch Marines, one of the oldest Marine Corps in the world, by the way, they started in 1665, but that's a little thing. So my training was indeed in a very one-way disciplined uh, organization, but when I went to the West Indies and I was stationed in a very small detachment camp in Aruba. There were basically about 325 or something like that Marines, a couple of officers and, uh, and then basically two uh, reinforced platoons as we call it. And that was one of them. One of the platoons were new guys that just arrived and the other one uh, then had already been trained for half a year as a period was and uh, and became then uh, the the, the uh, sparring uh, partner or the enemy as we would call it however because there were the marines uh, had an interesting um, management training tool also as a young lieutenant uh, you would be sending uh, you would be sent to a uh, a strange platoon that you had never met so in a very when there was a larger maneuver and uh, you had to take away the bars on your little shoulder you were a sort of green dungaree uniform 
and even your uh, carabine that you used to carry, which was a signal of you being an officer, was taken away, and you just had a had a, a normal uh, rifle in your hand. So you, with your rifle in your hand, no signals on on your shoulder, you stepped into a, a strange platoon. As I, I'm Lieutenant Campson at that time, and I'm here to uh, to guide you guys. Either you were accepted as a person by them or you didn't. And the way to get accepted was immediately to dive into their own situation. So that already happened uh, in the Marines. And um, it was an, inter an interesting uh, philosophy. I really did not um, signal it as a, uh, as a unique system, but looking back, uh, on it and expecting, as you just mentioned, that the Marines would, were, were a very top on down uh, organization with very strict indications and no room for individual. It was absolutely not that way. They were encouraging really initiatives of the, even down to the small, what we call, would call uh, rifle groups of about four people. And, um, and so when you were in maneuvers, uh, there was always, um, uh, situations that that were not uh, not pre-programmed, and and so you had to rely on the initiative and intelligence of your of your leaders uh, and of your of your Marines to uh, to be successful, and and so that was the first time when I really saw that uh, that if you wanted to get something out of people, you would have to get down into the trenches literally with them. And and find out what made them tick, and and see what could you do to help them become more effective. Without yeah. of not, and there was not a sort of weak discipline, but it worked. Um, I'll give you one example: what I did in in the in the Caribbean in Aruba. It was a situation where we had one navy vessel uh, commuting uh, commuting between Curacao and Aruba. And the guys on the on the Navy, on the vessel that I knew, had a lot of new rifles on it. Of course, they never used it. We, on the other hand, always did a lot of live ammo firing and exercising in the northern part of Aruba, with the uh, results that all our rifles, uh, the barrels were really worn out. So I talked to one of my young lieutenant friends on board and uh, gave him a, a crate of Heineken beer and then we we traded uh, the rifle barrels, which were interchangeable. Uh, so I got the new ones from from aboard the boat, and they got my old ones. And, and the result of that was that we when we went then to exercises, that we already always had the the best results of the whole uh, of all the platoons that were participating. So you discovered that what was important to them is beer. <laughs> and and they, the the thing was, however, that 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 my people. Uh, saw that I was doing this to help them, yeah, and not just telling them how to do it best. So leading by example, it it is it is a it's a way of 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 going, um, and so, I cannot say more about that. It's it's always the same thing um, in the car business, uh, which was a totally different business, and it almost it although it 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 looked like a very different thing uh, from the previous job that I had, which was running a very large hospital supply uh, company in Brazil with 1,200 people, mostly women, but also a lot of technicians. 
Um, and there was another example that, that came from Brazil. Uh, we had a large tool and die operation and it was bloody hot in Brazil always. And we were just outside of uh, Rio de Janeiro and the tool and die shop was, was not air conditioned. And uh, so I installed air conditioning in the tool and die shop. Uh, not only uh, it brought down the, the relative humidity, but it made people feel much more comfortable and they were able to to really work for eight hours and tool and die uh, operation is a very precise uh, technical enterprise um, and so the people that saw that saw that i was not only trying to increase manufacturing and, and production but also to make their lives better mm. and i did the same thing in in, in houston when we had uh, we were at that time uh, one of the largest dealerships in the United States uh, in, in Porsche Audi, uh, but it was a totally rundown organization when I got there. And one of the first things that we did is what expand uh, the uh, service department instead of going to the sales and, and to maybe do a, a snazzy showroom. We first start to work with a service department and um, maybe totally uh, modeled the services according to the same standards that Porsche had in Stuttgart at that time. And so we had uh, two sections, one Audi and one Porsche section. And I also uh, air conditioning the shop. People thought that I was crazy doing that, but it didn't take a whole lot. And you didn't have to really lower temperature too much, but just lower the, the, uh, the, the relative humidity. At that time, the Porsches uh, to the United States were becoming extremely complex uh, machinery. Um, not electronic, it was all electric. I think one, one 928 used to have about three miles of, of wires or whatever it was. So to have the guys become stake focused, uh, they had to be in an environment where they could really produce and felt proud of their own thing. So they had their own, as we call stall, had their own uh, tools, had their own identification. Uh, we decorated the stalls. Uh, so it, uh, the chief Porsche mechanic stood really out. And we used that also then for our customers to come in. So we invited them into the service department and show them what we were doing and what it was involved to really maintain those cars. Mm. Um, that helped us sell a lot of vehicles. Yes, I, I'm, I'm hearing yeah. a lot of reasons why you really succeeded you know, going down into the organization, taking care of your people, educating customers, involving customers. Um, I had, I, uh, and I, I learned something new thinking that the military was top down, uh, but in your particular military situation, uh, it sounds to me like you learned to, to go deep into the trenches of the organization and get to know everybody to, to gain their respect and then, and then lead. And then putting yeah. in air conditionings and all that it, to a lot of listeners, it might sound like, wow, but where do the profits go? And yet I know from your history, even though you invested in people, you invested in air conditioning, you invested in, in giving your time basically to, to, to you know, knowing people, it, it, it worked really well. You can't argue with that. Um, and, and did you want to say something before we go into then you know, what, what, what were your leadership challenges and what were your blind spots? 
Yeah, well, the the investment in the in in the equipment was not all that. It was basically cosmetic, and and I recall distinctly that the total investment of the largest uh, air conditioning unit for the Houston shop was twenty eight thousand dollars, which was really not a great amount of money. So it just lowered the temperature a little bit and it lowered the relative humidity and then and the rest was all really cosmetic so installing the stalls or giving the guys their their identification and um and that basically did it so it, it and and we so, yes, we so became, if, we if it had more. cost a lot more money would you still have done it no, it did not. And, and, uh, no, but if it would have, like, did you have in your mind as a CEO or as a leader, uh, it, I can't invest more than 20% of my people or 50% or was it a case by case basis? Because in this case, it sounds like it was not that big of a deal. Money wise, it was, of course, a huge deal to the people. But as a leader, is there a point where you go, okay, I'm going to take care of my people or I'm going to improve, but, but up to 50% or up to 20% or, or again, was that a case by case basis with you? Yeah. I, and, and I think that the, uh, the, the, the real result was really whether you, I, you invested $28,000 or, or if you didn't have that, you put ventilators in of $10,000 or $5,000. I think that the, the effect was that you made the effort to try and to make your people as comfortable as possible and as productive as possible in their own environment. And they saw that you were behind them instead of just managing it from the top down and say, you need to repair so many cars per day and so many this and otherwise you get, you get a, a discount on your, on your wages or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was trying to, to, uh, so, uh, showing people that you fully realize what, what, what it took to be successful in this and that they felt supported instead of feeling supervised. Ah, very good. Feeling supported rather than supervised. Great takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you sound like you woke, you know, like you, you just woke up with all this wisdom. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what are some of the struggles you had or what, what was your own leadership blind spot or, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you one thing. I, I maybe because I was in, especially at a young, fairly young age, and but even in uh, and the biggest example was in 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 Brazil, um, and because I had seen so many, uh, yeah. Let me put it this way: so many arrogant top uh, managers. Uh, my communication technology and my skills to to communicate with people that I did not really respect very much uh, was really pretty bad mm. and um, and and the one of the main uh, difficulties that I had and I should have detected it a lot earlier was was in Brazil uh, it was a, a large operation old-fashioned uh, not really uh, the way it should have been and i had just built a very modern in, in iv solution plant in the dominican republic also with brown technology and i knew of the ceo of brown and the co-owner george brown i already knew that when i was running the mexican operation for Boeing and ingelheim we were the co-distributor for them in, in in latin america anyway the guy in my view was an ego tripper which may have may not have been the case 
but I did not take my time to really build up a working relationship with George Brown. Hmm. I think I probably did let him know at any given possibility that I did not respect him. Hmm. And, uh, and since he had been as a young guy in Brazil and thought that he knew Brazil very well, uh, that, that it was even worse. So by not being effective in in establishing a respectful relationship with the top dog of the company, uh, indirectly, uh, I heard the uh, the or you know it decreased my ability to to really run the company effectively. One example was that uh, they were in Germany; they had um, bought a small suture manufacturing facility. Uh, which actually was a French company and it had a subsidiary in Sao Paulo. I was not able of, I did not take my time to communicate uh, with uh, George Brown that in, for the Brazilian operation, it made absolutely no sense. We would shoulder ourselves with a, with an old plant uh, with a very difficult technology, mm -hmm. uh, which involved uh, securing uh, the mucosa, which is the surface of, of a large intestinal cows from cows and, and of which you in a very complicated system at that time make the so-called cat gut, which is the, the solvable uh, surgical threat. Well, that, that involved uh, a huge logistics problem to getting the raw material from up uh, in the Amazon area and and I knew that, and I should have taken my time and be respectful to George Brown and told him that that was not an operation that would ever succeed. Hmm. Consequently, of course, I followed orders in this case, and we started and we started to operate the Sao Paulo uh, plant, and I traveled once per week uh, up and down to, from Rio to Sao Paulo and, uh, and got it going as good as possible but it was never competitive and eventually it, uh, it flopped. And uh, so we had to, it, it, Brown closed it down. That was one, one part. Another thing was that. But before you move on of that one, um, so you followed orders. Uh, so it, at that point in your career, you didn't just tell him, I don't respect you. And I think that's a bad decision. At this point, you followed orders. And yeah, then so did, basically, did, basically did the, it was a, a nasty way of setting the guy up because, of course, it was known eventually who made the mistake. Ah, so okay. I showed him up. Ah, in, in that kind of way. So instead of saying, I don't respect you, you're making a stupid mistake, you, you, yeah. it happened, you did it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. then, and that cost you, what did that cost you? Ah, it, it, it cost me... Um, Probably about in, in that uh, in that year and a half that that happened, I probably sh spent about fifteen percent of my one five just fifteen percent of my time on that Sao Paulo operation, hmm. which I should have which I should have spent on the operation of developing, for example, our business in Chile, in Ecuador, and uh, in Venezuela, and all that, yeah. and and in and running the, the company generally. So I was you know spending time where I shouldn't have spent time. 
So did you, at that point, did you learn your lesson or did you keep, keep, did you have a few more lessons you had to learn before you yeah, discovered? No, no, it, 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 I, I was still pretty stubborn and, and, uh, and George Brown had a, an, an industrial director who was the director of all of uh, North and South America. Uh, and, uh, I really hit it off with him very well. He also hired me at that time. And, and so, uh, I, he said I should start to develop the international business. Brown and Brazil did very little export, but I developed the business and in, to other countries and that allowed us to import uh, ready-made products from Germany. Anyway, one of the, th the projects that was I was dealing with with a, with a pharmaceutical company in Venezuela, uh, and I knew the owner very well, but the owner was a extremely short-tempered guy uh, and I had known him from my Beringer time. Um, and I told Dieter Otto, I said, look, I can deal with Guillermo Valentina very well. Uh, and we will set up a manufacturing facility for IV solutions in his very large pharmaceutical companies. And that will allow us to supply them with all the rest of the products that we were making. So one way uh, syringes, uh, artificial kidneys, uh, high uh, quality um, enteral nutrition products uh, and the likes. I said to, to Dieter Otto, but please let me handle it. Or if somebody has to come down to visit with Valentina, it needs to be you. Okay. So we go there and, and I sign the deal and we start to do the planning. And then George Brown sent me, send his uh, assistant from Switzerland in the holding company over to Guillermo. And, uh, and of course, Guillermo basically threw him out of his office. He was a little pipsqueak of a guy. And uh, so that didn't work. And, uh, and I had told Dieter Otto, if this does not go, I said, I have, I have your word that I can do this. And Dieter Otto said, yes. Well, of course, Dieter Otto, of course, could not really determine what his boss would do, George Brown, and I should not have held Dieter Otto responsible for what George Brown did. And that's exactly what I did. Oh. So when I mean, this thing blew up, I sent him a note. I said, I'm leaving. And I, I, I resigned oh. from Brown, from Brown, Brazil. And, yeah. and really, you know, and, and, and so I'm, I made Dieter Otto not look very good. And I didn't do myself a very big service because uh, I could have uh, followed up Dieter Otto in the job in, in, in the United States, which is what I wanted to do. So uh, it was still, I had a burr up my backside still against George Brown. And I thought I would hit George Brown, but I hit the Dieter Otto. I hit the wrong guy. So it was a, a wrong move all over the place. And I think I finally learned my lesson by then. Mm. So that was a bad one. So and, your emotions uh, of, of, you know, either being mad at someone or feeling like, you know, they're not, you know, that you don't respect them. So, so the lesson was, well, let me not say what your lesson was. You tell us what, what did you come, what conclusions yeah, well, the did you draw? The lesson was that you can be, you, you should not be, uh, it's okay to, to realize and, and maybe not have uh, in, in, in yourself very much respect 
for another person. But if that's in an organization and you know that you can't change that, then you have to find a ways to work with those, those folks. It does not have to lower your, to, or to change your opinion, your basic opinion. But as an executive of a larger organization, one of your things that you need to do really is to communicate and to, and to establish and to maintain good working relationship with the people because otherwise you're going to hurt the organization. Yeah. Or, or so you resign, but, but resign, you know, because you take responsibility for resigning because you're no longer willing to do that rather than getting mad at, at the other people. Is it, was that the other takeaway or like it, say, say I can't respect someone and I'm not gonna, I don't want to establish the relationship and I'm taking responsibility for that. Um, and I want to resign or I want to start something new. You would do it in I, a different I, way. It, it was, it was not, not a good, I, I could have resigned anyway, uh, but not the way I did it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when Guillermo Valentina called me and said that this guy from Brown came visit me and was going to tell me how I should run my business. And I threw him out of my office. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. Mm -hmm. I then picked up the phone and called Dieter Otto and said, I'm leaving. Oh yes. Yeah. So it happened all maybe within half an hour. Mm -hmm. And that was not, not good. I should have called Dieter and tell him, you know, what was going on. And then we would have found a way. And maybe if Dieter wouldn't have been able, I would have leave, left anyway, but in a much more professional manner. Mm. This was yeah. not up to standard of, of, of good management. So you've got to and, know yourself as a leader. Also, what, what kind of a leader you want to be in terms of your emotions, right? Because you were... You were upset. Uh, I could imagine it, in that it, half hour, because in that half hour, you you threw him out and you said, "I quit." So there were some emotions involved there. <laughs> yeah, and and I think uh, one of the, the people always felt, and I still think they they do, uh, that I was emotionally always involved in in their jobs and in my job. Mm. Okay, not in a negative way, but I was, you know, I was fully there for them. And, and so when this happened, uh, it, it, it was really, it was really, I was totally fed up with George Brown and, and, but, and that's why I did it, but I shouldn't have done it that way. Yeah. It's the way it happened. So the way it was done was wrong. Maybe the reason behind it eventually was right, but mm -hmm. the, the way it was done was, right. I mean, Brown, George Brown then got involved and he, he put a little assistant of his in, in the Brazilian operation. I went back to Brazil later on and talked to my uh, operational director uh, and, uh, and George Brown made a lot of mistakes later on and they even they really decreased the volume of the business and, and the position in Latin America never came back up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I could say, well, you see what I said, I was right, but that's, that really is not the way to go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, we, we had a, a similar situation, uh, last year in the infant nutrition company in Switzerland that I, that I am still consulting with and, and where I supervise directly supervise the building of a very modern uh, infant nutrition plant. Um, the guy that was a CEO, uh, was a, a little bit of an aloof guy, 
but he was okay human-wise. I did not respect his way of management very much, but I went, came along, get along, got along with him pretty well. Then they, they let him go, and they hired a guy that used to be in the in the airplane business. Had no idea at all about infant nutrition, and he totally mismanaged the company, and it cost him. They they just fired this guy in in the, after three years of of a disaster of a management. Uh, but with this guy, I never, I never, I knew what he was about, uh, but I, I did not do my, my George Brown, uh, maneuver with him. I just, you know, helped him as a consultant as good as I could. And that was it. So that was maybe a little bit too passive. Uh, but I think it, it, it it's a better way to go. You, you can't, if you, if you make too many battles you, you know you eventually uh may win the battle but you lose the war yeah well i yeah. appreciate you you sharing um you know your own insights because like i said it, it, it's a lot of people struggle at the beginning and then become successful but with you it seems like you were pretty successful at a very early age and everything succeeded it was not till later on when you know you got to deal with hey i need to because you were great at managing people and people love you. And I know, I know many people that had worked for you. And, uh, but then you had to learn to, to manage up when, and or to manage your emotions. And you didn't learn that lesson until, till later on after you'd already been very successful. So then when you left, when you quote unquote resigned, um, we'll just, you know, forward now to again, a completely different industry. Um, well, I mean, you've had so many experiences and I can talk to you for 10 hours, but, uh, but to get to the, the, another big question that a lot of leaders struggle with that are very smart and is, is the people aspect of things in terms of, you know, that was one of your strengths is you knew how to manage people, but you know, in the car industry, which you turned around very successfully after it was not doing well, um, I'm just curious, how did you manage that? Because in the pharmaceutical industry, I, I know that a lot of people say you have to develop relationships with doctors, and it's, it's a heavy, a lot of time gets spent into developing relationships. In the car industry, it seems like turnover is, you know, crazy. Salespeople get fired and hired all the time. It's like the higher fire game, I call it. And, and managers get, don't get set up to succeed you went from being very successful in a relationship business to taking over a business that traditionally is, is a commodity business. Um, what, what were some of the things that, that, you know, you did that worked? And I don't know if, if you learned any lessons there, or if you struggled with anything there. Yeah, I sure did. I sure okay. did. Yeah. Um, the, uh, what your observation on the car business generally is right. However, the Porsche and, and Audi, they, they were pretty upscale, as you probably know, even at that time. Um, so uh, you were not selling so many units. It was not such a sweatshop. Uh, and uh, you, if you really would, be, would want it to be successful of selling the higher priced cars, it was a very individual sale. And there the ability of the salesperson to communicate with the potential customer was great, was very important. And that was not unlike the uh, top medical rep uh, trying to uh, sell the, the chief of, an, of a hospital a, a line of products. Uh, 
So, um, and it was not totally new to me uh, because as an interim job, when I left Brazil and before I got to, uh, um, to Houston, um, I built a hotel in, in Cancun. And the owners of the hotel uh, were the directors of Volkswagen de Mexico. So I basically was, uh, was based uh, partly out of uh, the car company, Volkswagen de Mexico. And the reason why I knew those guys was that when I built the pharmaceutical plant in Mexico, um, the company that designed that plant and built that and, and, and uh, did the construction uh, was a company that had built a Volkswagen plant in Mexico in 18 months flat. And we were looking for something totally different than the traditional way of, of building a pharmaceutical company. So I got into contact with that company and that's how I met all the Volkswagen people. And that's how the Volkswagen people knew that I was at that time in Brazil and, and was leaving Brazil. So I, I picked up quite a bit of what they were doing and how that industry worked from a manufacturing point of view. From a retail point of view, uh, I did learn something very important. The uh, Porsche and Audi business in the United States had what they called 20 groups. There were 20 of the most important dealerships in the nation. And they had a already very sophisticated software program whereby they would interchange uh, experience, operating costs, uh, experiences, sales, positioning uh, amongst them. And you could subscribe to that. So my first year in the business, I was really the low guy on the totem pole. In the 20 group, we would see each other every quarter. And I was always the guy with the worst results because of the company was doing so well. But I really subscribed to the interchange of information. And then I start to pick the people uh, that were doing well in certain segments. I start to pick their brains. And then I, I applied that to the dealership. So I really did. I applied. I had no ego there at all. So I applied the best things that I heard and I learned to the operation in Houston. And that eventually got me on the top of the whole thing. Hmm. And after four years, I became chairman of the 20 group and I got the highest, uh, higher standards of higher, uh, the large success in all departments that was ever achieved in the, in the Porsche dealership. Uh, but it was basically learning from other guys. Hmm. So, you know, and that was a, was a good takeaway for me. So, and, and basically it was still the respect for your people, building a good team, trying to keep, to keep your, your good people, which was not easy in the car business, mm. but that's what happened. And how did you keep them? Again, by motivating them, talking to them, being on the floor with them, helping them with difficult customers. Uh, the Porsche salespeople um, complained and correctly so at that time that they had to share the whole operation together with the Audi people. And they were really a, a different segment of the market. Mm. One was very upscale and the other one was middle of the market. So what I did is for them, I created a, a, a nice environment. So I imported a lot of stuff from Germany uh, where I knew the Porsche people personally pretty well. And, um, 
and made a Porsche room in a, uh, in a Porsche environment. And now all of a sudden it looked very exclusive and, and that enabled them to really, to really uh, deal with the customers. And, and then I did one more thing with the Porsche people. Uh, every customer that bought a Porsche, whether it was used or, or uh, not used or a new car, got a, a courtesy membership of the Porsche Club of America. Mm-hmm. And I stimulated a, um, a test uh, drive in the test track of the, of the Houston Police uh, Organization in North Houston. And that meant that the people that got a Porsche were able to test their car for the first time because they'd never driven usually a car like that uh, on the test track of the police or academy. Huh. So again, these were different things. And the other guys, of course, did not do that in the, in, in, in the nation. And, yeah. and I did. And uh, so I, we created more members of Porsche Club of America in one year than the whole organization on the, on the other side. Wow. So again, it, but it, again, it was in the spirit of enabling our four specialists in Porsche to do the job as good as they can. Yeah. 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 And so it has, that had little to do with the product, but it's the philosophy. I think that's a big takeaway because I happen to know you also bought a, or you were also managing a Mitsubishi dealership, which again is totally different customer than Audi or, or Porsche and you did well on that one too. You've been in the hotel industry, you've been in the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, that's, that's always been the, the interesting part when, when I tell people about you, um, you know, they think you, uh, you're in the oil and gas business or in the, in the military because you've moved around so much and seen so much, but you were able to move from industry to industry and turn things around because of your philosophy on, on how you interacted with people and how you manage people. You, and it seems yeah, and, like you really listen to them and you do what makes, you know, you're, you're not afraid to try new things. You're, you know, everybody else may be doing it a certain way, but you're not afraid to try new things. No. Uh, and, and it is, it's always in it's, as you have mentioned that in other occasions, it's managing expectations. Mm-hmm. So one thing I would always do, and I still do that. I tell people upfront what they can expect from me. Mm-hmm. There's no secrets. They know me very well. You're clear. And then I, and then I, and then I stick to what I say I do. Mm. Yeah, they may not always like it, but it's, it's, it's always, it's always the same thing. I uh, think that's very example, key. <laughs> when we, when we build the plant in, in, uh, in Switzerland, the, uh, in IV solution, the, uh, infant nutrition plant, uh, I had a guy there that was a local engineer. And I had demanded uh, from from the CEO that I would need a guy totally uh, uh, totally in charge and that could make decisions without having to wait to go back to his boss and all that kind of good stuff. As long as we stayed within the budget and within the technical uh, specifications, we just put the pedal to the metal. And every morning at 7.30, I called him. And I checked always, you know, started with the infant, with the infrastructure and things like that. In the beginning, he didn't understand why I was doing it. He thought I was, I was checking him. I said, no, you and I are going to look at a critical path and find out exactly where we are. And if we do that every day and be managed by exception instead of by the rules, 
or by the general factors. So we were only discussing which aspects did not permit us to proceed as quickly as we thought. Mm. And we did that every morning. Well, after a while, he did it. I called him and he already got on the phone and in 15 minutes told me what was going on. I said, bye, bye. And that was it. Mm. So, you know, you, you got to do things a little bit differently sometimes. Um, I'll give you another example. When we build a, uh, a plant in, in, uh, in Göttingen in Germany, that was a, uh, an ingredient plant for, it was, a, it was a pilot plant really. It was like a large lab in a pilot uh, facility to produce uh, uh, soy-based uh, hydrolysis, as they call it at that time. So products that are very easy to digest. And it was a very novel technology, very difficult, was not proven and all kind of things. But a plant had to be built, and I had to find a constructing company to do that. And I found a company that was a that had five teams that could build that across Germany. And one of them was close to where we were building the plant. And um, so I said, "Well, how 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 much time do you need?" And the guy said, "Well, a year and a half." I said, "Well, no." I said, well, we're going to do that in eight months. He said, well, you're crazy. I said, no, we're not, I'm not crazy because you got two construction teams at the moment and you don't have a job at the moment. And because construction was very low. I said, we're outside of the little village and you can work for 22 hours per day, two shifts. You're going to get the same amount of money, but you can terminate it and in, in, uh, finish the job in eight months or nine months. You make a lot more money. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's love, it's better for everybody. Well, he thought about it and then we talked a little bit more and then we talked to his boss and we did it that way mm. and it worked. Yeah. So it, it you got to think outside of the envelope, but once you do something, you got to let your people know what you're doing. And especially, and that is maybe my biggest takeaway of all is tell people why you are doing things. Yeah. If you don't tell them why, even if you think if you're doing things that seems to them to be crazy and maybe they are, but at least let them know why you do that crazy thing. Yeah. If you want them to come along with you. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. And that's very different from barking orders and, and expecting them to follow without explaining why. So it it truly is a honoring. What, what, that, what has surprised you about managing people? What surprised me uh, is that even in in companies that that seem to be very uh, well uh, organized and that have good uh, systems and procedures in place, uh, and apparently um, let the people know what they're doing, they still don't. Uh, I wouldn't say understand it, but they still do not take that inside themselves uh, until you get down with them and create, co-create their own goals, their own position in the company. So you're surprised by the way other people lead people or don't lead people rather. 
Yeah, but it, it's it's surprising that that if you if you yeah if you see that kind of an organization, it's surprising that if you didn't start to really dig down and talk to the individual people, that you find a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication. Yes, and therefore not motivated people. Yes. Well, by if you would, if you, if one of the top guys would come down to the floor mm. and say, "Look, this is why we, why we have all these procedures. This is why we do this." Yeah. So not being in the eye retire, but actually going, going to the floor and talking. Exactly. What about you yourself when you were managing people? Um, you know, what what surprises did you have? Well, I, th- I, I know one of the times you told me that you were surprised how sensitive people are. Well, yeah, uh, and and again, uh, again there, and maybe in my early career, uh, I was I, I was less sensitive to that than than I am now. Um, but yes, uh, the, the the surprise is is even if you think that they subscribe together with you to what they're doing together, very often they're not. So. Um, People, uh, I think, uh, to a certain degree, will always uh, hide a lot of their own real feeling from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, the challenge is: how do you work around that? How do you get them to to really uh, commit to what they're doing when they're working? And 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 how do you? And, and are you sensitive enough to to see that that maybe their private life, et cetera, will have a big part part in what they're doing? Yeah. And catching that or early enough. Yeah, I think uh, I think the pattern I'm hearing from several leaders is that they're surprised that you know either someone will quit or you know all of a sudden their performance drops. And they didn't see it coming, and it was because, in general, people don't tell their bosses what they're dealing with. They'll talk to everybody else about it, but not their boss. Is that is that what you're talking about, or like were you surprised that people didn't didn't tell you or that you didn't know, or or what what surprised you about people not telling so, you things? Surprised? Not not really. I mean, I think I had I had enough in, in mid my mid career. I had enough. Uh, understanding of how, how the human being functions that I, I knew what to expect and I was looking for it. Yeah. And I, yeah, but, but it, it's always very important to, to do that. And, um, and as you know, we've, we've discussed that before, uh, in way back when, when I went to a, a six week management course of, of executives and with the American management association in New York, I was still working in New Mexico at that time. They introduced me to a system which they called standards of performance, and basically it was nothing else than getting down to the floor with your people, sitting down and discussing together what the plans were for the future, what their goals were, uh, how uh, and what their uh, what their standards would would be, and and how we could help them. Yeah, and you and, you you taught me that too, thankfully. <laughs> Yeah. So I and, was and, I was one of your uh, customers. Uh, yeah, you and, consulted and inst- with me and, on that. And and instead of what people still do, giving job descriptions, mm-hmm. you know, usually by the HR people that have no idea what is happening on the floor, 
uh, or very little and uh, having job description and then they have evaluation uh, discussion with them which is like a like an exam every quarter yeah See, not very okay. motivating <laughs> yeah no not at all kills yeah. people yeah so it yes. doesn't it, it 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 it's no it's not a real complicated system but it takes it takes a manager who feels comfortable to deal with a with their employee at their level yeah and still be intelligent enough to to explain to them why maybe all their expectations are are in the game well i certainly appreciate you sharing all the things that you did that did work because you know even though you got to go to this course in new york uh, a lot of leaders are not being sent to any leadership development courses and a lot of leaders are entrepreneurs who either don't have the money or the time or, or, you know, mentorship is almost non-existent right now because everybody's so busy. And, um, you know, you've been very successful. You've seen a lot. You've also, um, as you know, as a leader, your blind spot can cost you in your case at the time, it was 15% of your yeah, time and efforts. Good. But, but what, what would you tell leaders that are listening to you now regarding, you know, maybe how do you discover your blind spot or, you know, what's the one takeaway that as a leader that you need to really pay attention to as you're trying to take your company to the next level? Yeah, the, well, the, my blind spot was, was really, and, and it has been like that for quite a while before I really, I mean, I detected it maybe before, but I really didn't act on it. That I think if you know that you have a very well-defined blind spot as I did, which was my miscommunication or lack of communication with people that I did not respect in a mm -hmm. larger organization. Mm -hmm. And you have to have that if you want to really be, be successful. So to do to uh, that, that blind spot, you need to act on. And why did you not act on it right away? And because I didn't like the guy. <laughs> yes. So even though you may, you may know what your blind spot is, you may not know the exactly. depth of so the problem. That's, a, that's another thing <laughs> is that, I mean, you do know what the blind spot is and you sort of stick it under your pillow. <laughs> so the blind yeah. spot is you don't know how bad it is. <laughs> yeah, then there's another blind spot that's on top of the blind spot. That is by not uh, by not recognizing and not acting upon it. Yeah, yeah. And that is probably I would say to you, Birger, that is probably uh, a problem that a lot of people have. A lot of intelligent people will know, you know, what the weak spot is, what the blind spots are, but then do they do something about it? Mm-hmm. And, and that took me quite a while to do, to, to realize that. Yeah. So, so act sooner because you don't know how much it's costing you. Cause at the time, I mean, you don't act because you don't think it's that big of a deal. Right. But it was not until later that you discovered, no, it's costing me time. It's costing me frustration. So what was the turning point for you that you were like, okay, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Well, um, in, in my case, it came together uh, with the fact that I liked startup companies uh, and reconstruction companies much more than to run a well-oiled large machine. Mm -hmm. So I'm what I always told people: I'm a startup artist, not not a guy that uh, you know that runs a, <laughs> a well or, well organized thing. And um, 
and uh, when uh, I worked in the United States in the pharmaceutical business also, I hadn't mentioned that to you, but I, I worked for the German pharmaceutical company, Natural Pharmaceutical Products, and based in Utah. Um, and um, the company was, a, was very much dedicated to this business. It's phytopharmaceuticals, it's the herbal medicines, call them whatever you want to call them. Okay, mm -hmm. so it was a very, very interesting thing, and they asked me to run a company that, that we had acquired in, in, in Utah. Um, when the company in Germany, the family-owned company in Germany, uh, then uh, the owner left the operating issues to a, a new guy that came from a, a hard-nosed pharmaceutical, German pharmaceutical company. And the guy wanted to change everything. Uh, and um, I should have, at that time, I felt, well, I need to be able to communicate with this guy because otherwise it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And it did not work. Mm. And, and uh, But I, I did, that was, at that time, I really bent over backwards. And I knew the owner also very well. And I bent over backwards to make him see uh, the terrible in, uh, stuff that I was going to do in the United States and really erect the business. So this time you spoke up and let him know you didn't agree. Yeah, but I was, I was respectful and, yes. and left them the opening to do it. And, um, and even the uh, human resources director, which was an ex-pro basketball player in the United States, but he was a German guy. Uh, he said, you know, just stay with us. Uh, because this new guy's not going to last very long, mm. which he did not. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he was, they fired him after about a year or so of that, but I could not operate on, under this guy's. Uh, and, and at that time I also, um, you know, I resigned from the company, but I resigned very respectfully. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was not a great satisfaction to see the damn thing go down the, down the, down the tube, frankly. It's yeah. still existing, but not as, as, as good as it could. Uh, so the, the, it was, I was conscious of the fact that I should communicate well and be respectful to the top of the people, uh, to the top of the company. Yeah. And I, and I did that. And, and when the company said, well, yeah, we, you, and we hear you, you, we hear you loud and clear, but we don't agree. Mm-hmm. Well, then, then comes a point where you have to, you know, to take a, to take and make a decision. Yeah. And that's basically where, where I finally then start to, uh, after another stint of, of being president of, uh, of a company in, in Europe, uh, an American company, when that, when that, uh, when, when that exercise, uh, uh, stopped because they sold the company from underneath us here, um, the owners. Then I decided to put up my own consulting company. Yeah. And and the the blind spot that I have as a consultant uh, is that I have difficulty of not being able to get into the real operation of the companies that I'm consulting with. So you can only advise them. You can mm -hmm. lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yes. And but the fact that I can't make them drink. Uh, 
maybe because of my, my experience before is, is giving me troubles once, once in a while. <laughs> yes. so I have to be very careful. I recognize that blind spot, but I have to be careful that I, that, that doesn't get out of hand. Yeah. Wow. So you're, you're really uh, becoming a master in, <laughs> in catching your, <laughs> your need to communicate respectfully when you <laughs> see things that don't work. Okay, well, so then to wrap it up, it's, it's uh, you know, we've got a lot of leaders who are startups and who are trying to take their companies to the next level. So now you can even relate to that as well. You've run big companies, medium companies, started companies, and now you're a consultant. So what, what would be, you know, the one or two things that you recommend a leader really look at to take their company to the next level? If you take company to the next level, is as I said before, make sure that 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 the plans that you have to take it to the next level uh, will be fully subscribed to by the people. And if they if they're not, explain to them why. Try to really explain. Don't you know? Don't don't uh, don't bribe them, but but to start to really explain to them why you're doing certain things. Mm-hmm. And and then. That is probably the most important one, is stay the course. There's a very interesting statistic that 20% of all sales, salespeople in the United States sell 80% of all the goods and services. Mm-hmm. Now, you wanted to know, of course, what those people have in common. Yes. Female, male, uh, backgrounds totally different, cultural difference all over the place. No statistically significant uh, properties that you can detect and say, I can apply that, except for one. That they close their sales in the sixth or seventh go around. Mm. Well, most people will give up. After talking to a customer three or four times, and he said, "No, you know, get out of here. Your products are worthless, or whatever." Then they give up. Yeah. So if you want to be good, you got to stay the course. Yes, and, <laughs> that's a good and one. And believe in you, and believe in yourself, and hire the right people. <laughs> yes, yeah. and definitely hire the right people. Yeah. How did you figure out how to hire the right people? Huh. That was uh, the, the biggest challenge that, that I found the first time was when I was working as a supervisor in the Caribbean area. And I was dealing with French talk, speaking people in Haiti, uh, English in Jamaica and Trinidad, uh, Spanish in the Dominican Republic and, uh, and Dutch in, in the Dutch islands and in Suriname. I had to find distributors and I had to hire people medical reps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the first inclination is, of course, to look at who's doing well with the competition and, and, and take that guy away from it. Mm-hmm. Well, in my experience, that really never worked. So we took the time, or I took the time to really find intelligent people that were interested in the business. And, and the, the key here is if they're interested in it. Not mm-hmm. just for the money, but also in the business. Do mm-hmm. they have, have an affinity? Do do they like medicine? Do they like uh, healthcare? You know, whatever. And then train them. Mm-hmm. Take time and train them. Mm-hmm. 
and then only then you can see uh, if you've been successful or not. Well, that's interesting to look for their affinity for the business. Um, I think that's that's a very interesting point to look at that I don't think a lot of people do. But why do you say, I mean, I also know a lot of people do hire their competitors and you're right. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't work out, but you said in your experience, you, you didn't do that. What had you decide not to do that? So why did you know hiring a competitor didn't work? It, I have to, to rephrase that maybe a little bit bigger. It, it, uh, it, it, it is part intuition and, and, and part, uh, and part to be very close to people and, and following them very closely and again, supporting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you might hire someone from the competition, but there's no guarantee that they're going to work out. It's who, yeah. it's how you lead someone and are they interested in the business and are they a team player? And I'm sure there are other things you look for as well. Yeah. Well, if you hire from the other people, uh, can you hold on for a second? Sure. Just a second, please. So as we've been hearing so far, it's, you know, the blind spot is a lot of leaders um, might know that something's not working, but they don't realize what it's costing them to not act on that. That's one. The second one is uh, to take your company to the next level. Um, make sure that you actually find people that are interested in what you're doing and what you're up to. And then what we kept hearing him say is always say the why, why you're doing what you're doing, being consistent with it. It is, you know, we, we keep hearing he's worked in large companies, small companies, mid-size, you know, now he's a consultant. And um, the theme though, that I keep hearing is that really started at the military, which is getting uh, to know people at all levels and constantly communicating with people. And he was very good at not sitting in the ivory tower and talking to operations, talking to field people. The, now, and now he's a consultant. And then, you know, a lot of people are really great at making clients number one, uh, but they refer to that as external clients. And, uh, you know, he has, he discovered how to make the internal client number one. So having the internal client be number one seems to be what has been one of the greatest successes for his career because everywhere he went, he led people successfully. So now, now that you're back, one of the things I was saying too is it seems like a big takeaway also is you have, a lot of people make the client number one, listen to the client, serve the client, but they don't make the internal client number one. They don't listen to the internal client. They don't, you know, co-develop things with the internal client. And it seems to me that that was one of the things that also really helped you succeed. Absolutely. I, I may not have realized it so, uh, so much, but I always felt that if you didn't have the right team, the right people, you could never serve your client well. Yeah. Huh? Yes. And if you didn't lead people by managing them well, right? Because you can hire the top person, but if you don't have a relationship with them and if you don't treat them well, 
they're going to leave yeah. you and, and go to the competition or, or, or start their own company. <laughs> yeah. That, that you need to, you need to know, um, to, to speak with the old Marine uh, mentality that if you were in the dark somewhere that you, you folks would, would, uh, you know, would work the way they were supposed to work without you being able even to see him. Beautiful. Well, that's a great wrap up. Um, so while, uh, while you stepped away for a second, I summarized some of the things that I heard you say. And um, I think you just literally gave us a great wrap up with a great leader is someone who even when he or she is not around, the team is still performing and still doing well. Yeah. And, uh, and I certainly appreciate uh, the impact you had on our company and my blind spot at the time when you were helping me with the staffing firm is I didn't realize how important it was to establish a relationship with bankers. So you're the one who helped us with that. You're the one who said, make sure you get, need a line, get a line of credit, even if you don't need it. And, um, you know, I, I had a certain kind of arrogance, like, you know, we man we were doing really well. We managed our money well. And, and, uh, I don't need bankers and I don't, you know, I don't like to have debt and you kind of, you know, <laughs> were very good about pointing out my blind spot that you may not need the bankers right now and you may not like debt, but it's good to have uh, that in place when you don't need it. And sure enough, then later on, one of our clients, it was a big company who sat on not paying us on time. It yeah. could have put us under yeah. had we not had the line of credit. And then fast forward, you know, um, one of the bankers that I made a relationship with, I was in a situation in life later on where I had the money, but the, to, to buy a house at the time in the U S needed to have steady income for two years. And I'd become a mom. I'd sold the company and, and uh, I didn't qualify, but because of the relationship established with the banker, he gave me a signature loan and I was able to get the house bought easily. And that, that would have never happened had I not, you know, uh, followed your advice, uh, and, uh, and establish a relationship, you know, with people that at the time you think you don't need. And, and really, um, a lot of people would say, I don't need employees. They're lucky to be employed, but you also have the mentality of treat people well, whether you need them or not. And that is something that I've always appreciated about you. And I think that's helped me be a really good leader. And um, so anyway, thank you for your time today. And I'm glad you're still consulting with companies, even though, like you said, sometimes you wish you could make them drink. I'm sure you wish you could make me drink sometimes too, instead of just leading me to, to the water. <laughs> but uh, with that, um, thanks to you. I also speak many languages and, and the listeners that don't know you are my father. <laughs> so I've been blessed to um, really have learned a lot from you and to apply it myself. So thank you for that. Thank you for taking the time today and sharing your experiences. And um, I will say, tot ziens, au revoir, adios, <laughs> until the next time. Take care. Okay, hasta luego. <laughs> hasta luego. <laughs> Ciao, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, listeners, too.